0: it is the collector's show and thanks for tuning in Uh, and thanks to those of you who've been wondering where the show has gone where have you been why did you leave are you coming back when are you coming back well I never really left Um, I had a medical (laughs) challenge to say the least last summer that has taken me quite a while to recover from and i'll say more about that here in a minute but first just to let you know the program remains one hour long we'll have our news segment two interview segments and not this week but hopefully next week we'll return with our found collectible of the week and our buddy heather gallegos heather has a raging case of the flu this week so heather get well soon because goodness knows the show is way better when you're on than not. And in the interview segments, Don Muting, who owns Pinball Collectors and is an expert on collecting and restoring pinball machines, he's going to talk to us about his hobby of collecting pinball machines and give us some insight into where pinball machines are going as an industry. And let me tell you, the outlook is not that good <laughs> for the pinball machines, and he'll talk to us more about that. And then Todd Wilbur. You may have seen Todd Wilbur on the Food Network television show. You may have seen him even on the Today Show. He has recreated and published a collection of recipes from some of America's most popular restaurants, TGI Fridays, Bennigan's, Logan's, places like that, where he will teach you how to recreate those recipes at home. And he has several books that he's published where he's collected those recipes. And I have even tried a few of them myself, just to get ready for the interview, and because they look good. And I have discovered the secret of Twinkies. Todd has taught me how to make the filling for Twinkies. It is the holy grail of snack food. It made my life better, <laughs> knowing how to make Twinkies and knowing what was uh, what was in the filling. It may have not made my health any better, but it certainly made life better. All of that coming up later in the collector's show. Of course... We're going to start this program like we have always with the news segment. 3,000 Chairs is the biggest miniature collection of chairs that we can find anywhere. It's in Stone Mountain, Georgia. And interestingly enough, I've been to Stone Mountain, Georgia. There's a terrific golf resort there called Callaway Gardens. Some excellent golf if you're a golfer. And if you're not a golfer, you can visit Barbara Hartsfield's little shop in Stone Mountain Village, where she has more than 3,000 miniature chairs. You can't sit in them, because they're like for dollhouses, but 3,000 miniature chairs, and they're made out of all kinds of stuff. They're made out of picture frames. They're made out of snow globes. They're made out of salt and pepper shakers. They're made out of just about anything you can name. And like I say, it's... Uh, a gallery, the miniature gallery, is at nine nine four Main Street in Stone Mountain. Not a big place. You can't, uh, you can't not see it if you're there. A um, couple hours outside of Atlanta. Now, what motivates people to collect is a topic we talk about a lot on this show. Show. Here's what may have inspired Barbara Hartsfield. She started collecting miniature chairs as a hobby when she was working full time as a psychiatric nurse at Grady Hospital so there you go inspiration for hobbies comes from the world of work and i think that's <laughs> enough said about that we talk about icky weird awful collections sometimes and this one is yuck just as bad as anything we've ever talked about morning memorabilia and i'm not talking about am the sun comes up morning I'm talking about funeral mourning. There are people who collect mourning memorabilia. morning items, it's just one of those areas that has a very big yuck factor, at least for me. But, you know, not everybody's like me. Some people might be interested in this, and I thought it was a good item to put on the show. There are even smart collectors who can differentiate between mourning memorabilia and memento mori, which are artistic depictions—many macabre—that remind us of our mortality. Mourning was pretty much a quiet affair until Queen Victoria lost her beloved Prince Albert, of Prince Albert and a can fame, back in ni- sorry back in eighteen sixty-one. Plunging into a public and prolonged mourning period, Victoria created a new level of formal mourning. In the Victorian era, mourning became a ritual with strict rules, including standards for attire, dictating that women wear black, and something called jet jewelry. Social rules extended to hair accessories, umbrellas, fans, socializing behavior, and more. And the hair accessories is where it gets really weird, because that's what people collected. Locks of hair from the deceased were woven into sentimental jewelry, including bracelets, brooches, necklaces, earrings with gold fitting. Hair, often plated, was mounted onto gold and black enamel. Yuck. Floral wreaths of all sizes, often elaborate, were fashioned into woven human hair. Hair weaving became a hobby. craft in the mid to late 1800s using bobbin weights, as in lace making. So you could make lace out of hair, a hair doily for example. Not all hair came from the deceased. Oh, this is even worse. Some was saved after brushing and collected in a decorative ceramic hair receivers on a dressing table. Okay, that's going to make me sick if I have to read much more of that. So, Here's another bad hobby or another bad collection. Collecting ecstasy pills. That's right. Ecstasy pills. This is out of Amsterdam. A man who said he spent two decades collecting ecstasy pills of all colors and shapes as a hobby, and here's where it gets dumb, turned to the police to help after they were stolen because he said some of them were poisonous. (sighs) Police say the 46-year-old man who was not identified decided to report the theft despite the illegal nature of the collection because he was worried about the possible consequences if anybody were to swallow one of the poison pills. It wasn't immediately clear why about 40 red and white pills out of, get this, 2,400-pill-strong collection would be poisoned, but the police said, they feared the drugs could be lethal if swallowed. That's really the main reason he came to the police. The police spokeswoman Esther Naber said, adding that, oh, he knows he's not getting his collection back. And this is out of Amsterdam where pff, I thought everything was legal. Apparently ecstasy isn't. He claimed that he was not a drug dealer or a user, just a serious collector of ecstasy pills. Now I have heard everything. That made the hair thing seem kind of normal. The ecstasy (laughs) pill collection. Here's a guy here in mid-Michigan. I saw this on the local news from WJRT-TV, the local ABC affiliate here in mid-Michigan. A mid-Michigan man has a big problem. He needs to sell the baseball cards he's been collecting for the past 25 years. Doesn't sound like such an awful problem to me. Until you learn he has 1.2 million cards. And let me tell you, As somebody who tried to sell some baseball cards last summer, it is not a seller's market. There are baseball cards. You could go to the sun with the baseball cards in my basement if you laid them end-to-end, and there there is nobody buying them. And I've even had some what I thought were pretty nice cards. They're not selling. How much space do 1.2 million cards take up? A wall about 18 feet long and 8 feet high. It's usually spread out on the garage floor. I'm glad to see that there's somebody else besides me who uses their garage for something other than the car. They're all over, and you can't even get into the garage because he sets them everywhere, says his wife, Elizabeth Ramsey. This guy's name is Nick Ramsey, by the way. She keeps telling me every time I buy more cards, I thought you were done with cards. I thought you were moving on. It does take up a lot of space, and it doesn't do anything for me, Elizabeth said. The collection is about 80% baseball cards, with some football, basketball, and hockey thrown in for good measure. Ramsey says he's probably only looked at 3% of the cards, but the ones he has seen read like a baseball's who's who. Ramsey was laid off recently and could use some extra money. How much is the collection worth? Well, they usually sell for $0.10 a card times $1.2 That would be $120,000. Ramsey isn't sure what hobby he'll take up next, but it's safe to say it probably won't be something quite so voluminous. And if you want to find his collection, you can find it on Craigslist. So there you go. News of pedestrian, big, and really weird and even yucky hobbies in this week's news. Stay tuned for the interview segments coming up here on The Collector's Show. It's Web Talk Radio. I'm Harold Nichol. Thanks for listening. In the last half of the 20th century, like I did, no doubt you played pinball. And I'm old enough to remember when pinball was five plays for five cents. That was a long time ago. Those kinds of machines are extremely rare and collectible. And our guest, Don Muting, makes a career out of collecting and restoring old pinball machines. And Don, welcome to The Collector's Show. Now, I thought one of the things that you and I talked about earlier in the week was uh, your background. Tell the audience a little bit about what you were originally doing and, and what, how you transitioned to the, uh, the pinball world.
1: The easiest way to explain it is as a teenager, I tried to repair TVs all the time, and as a result of that, I ended up with everybody else's, what they used to call at the time, dogs. Uh hard to fix. So I started trying to figure out something else to work on. And one time my wife and I were on a vacation and we picked up a pinball machine. (laughs) And that's when I got started doing pinball machines as a hobby then. And later as I was laid off from Douglas Aircraft, I became... Uh, a repair man full
0: time. So, I mean, working at Douglas Aircraft, aircraft, you're a uh, a very mechanically inclined uh sorry, mechanically inclined sort of a guy who could uh look at these machines and tell what was wrong with them.
1: Well, at 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 Douglas Aircraft, I was a computer programmer. Oh, okay. So Really, what it's turned out to be is I've been very mechanically inclined since I was a youngster because my father was a superintendent of a machine shop. So I was sort of walking around in that kind of stuff when I was very young. After that, and working on pinball machines, after being a programmer, it turned out to be, it's just relay logic. Uh It's very logical. It's very easy to figure out. It's just figure out one thing starts and something else has to happen, and it goes in a sequence, and you just have to be able to read a wiring diagram and figure out what happens next.
0: And your background repairing televisions probably didn't hurt either.
1: Well, it was really two different things, because televisions is all what they call analog, uh-huh. where uh, pinball machines and computers is all digital, Okay. on or off.
0: Now, you were on vacation, and you saw this pinball machine, and tell us about that. Did just inspiration hit you? I have to have a pinball machine?
1: Well, I had bought pachinko machines. Oh, most okay. people don't even know what those are.
0: Well, I do, but you could explain to the audience what they are.
1: Uh, it's kind of like, it's the early pinball machine, which was a wooden board with nails in it. Mm-hmm. But it's put vertically. So the balls fall down the, the play field, and they use little balls, as, and it's a gambling machine in, in Japan.
0: Right. I've I've uh, visited Japan in the past and seen them there, and you can buy them in catalogs, too, it turns out.
1: Yes. Yes. When I first started, I bought something like five of them from, a I guess what's now called Pier 1 Imports or something like sure. that. It was then called Acheron. Mm-hmm. and... I fixed them up and sold them, and that gave me the bug for pinballs. And when we were on vacation, we stopped at an arcade manager, an arcade route man, I guess you'd call him. Uh And he pointed over in the corner after I said I was interested in a pinball. And she said, that one over in the corner you can have for $50. Oh, man. So there was only one catch to it. I was driving a motorhome with my family. Right. So we took the legs off of it, and we took the head off of it. That's the thing that my co-author and I joke about a lot is they come apart into the head, the body, and the Mm. legs. Right. As long as a policeman isn't listening on the phone, you're probably fine.
0: Um, It's a landline. Nobody can listen in, so you're good.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So what we did is we took the body and hefted it up on top of the motorhome Mm -hmm. and stored the head in the aisleway of the motorhome. Uh Well, the problem is it blocked the bathroom most of the time. Uh Uh-oh. We had to move it every time we wanted to go to the restroom. Oh, dear. But we got it home and got it going, and actually I rented it out to a person for a number of years.
0: No kidding. And what kind of a game was it?
1: It was called Bally Harvest. Mm Mm-hmm. It was one of the early machines that came into California, as we were talking about before, because of the law restrictions in California. Anything prior to 1976 couldn't come in because it was considered a gambling device.
0: And that's a an excellent segue, and I bet uh, people who aren't that age and didn't come from California probably didn't realize that pinball machines were illegal. That's right. And I can remember I'd go into the video, well, they weren't video arcades in that day, but just uh, game arcades, and um, there was always a sign up that said, no wagering. Yes. But how were they considered gambling? Because I never saw one that paid out or paid off.
1: Well, it was the old thing that, as a teenager, you'd get good at your uh, reflexes, and you could probably win several games on a pinball machine. Right. Instead of playing them off, you would just sell them to somebody and walk out with the money in your pocket. Oh! So some of the different states had the rule that the credit meter could not show. You had a light on the uh, arch down at the bottom of the play field that would be on if you had credits, but it right. would be off with no credits so you didn't know how many you had, so you couldn't sell them to somebody.
2: Oh, okay.
0: That's
1: how some of the wagering, got, they got around or canceled the wagering from happening.
0: Okay. I can remember that when you'd win a free game, it would make kind of that cracking sound. Yes. What, how did that, what made that noise?
1: <laughs> That's called a knocker, and what it really is is a coil with a piston in it, and then the piston comes in contact with another piece of metal, that is mounted to the side of the cabinet. So okay. You can just imagine it radiates through the whole cabinet
0: when it hits. And it made a loud knocking yeah. sound. The aptly named knocker. Yes. If you're just joining us, it's the Collector Show with Harold Nickel. We're talking with Don Muting about pinball machines. So all you have to do with fifty bucks is haul this one off. You repaired it and you rented it or leased it. Is that what you were saying?
1: Yes, I did.
0: And um, did you make money at
1: it? Well, I rented it to a private residence for a, a, a nominal amount a month. It was just the idea, but that got me going, and then I could take the money and get myself another one and things like that. Okay.
0: so. And then I, sorry, go ahead.
1: I started working for, a, actually it was a miniature golf course and arcade that was locally, located in Torrance at the time. Mm-hmm. I didn't know when he hired me that his lease was running out in something like three months but I started working there and I repaired machines that nobody else had been able to repair because of my electronics background and and things like and the logic I was able to figure them out. It was the old computer quiz. Yeah. Which is a weird little unit. It was made out of old old telephone parts. Get out. That's why most people couldn't figure out how it worked.
0: This is just the neatest story. This is like you're like the fourth person in a row that we've interviewed lately who took uh... something that was just i don't know kind of anomalous and turned it into a career and uh... your you and your uh... fellow pinballers and the other people we've chatted with about this are to be congratulated for your for your ingenuity and for turning something fun into a into a job
1: well it's really interesting because my co-author he and I produced the Pinball Collector's Resource magazine and book. Right. Uh, was a electronics shop teacher in Torrance High in Torrance, California. Okay. Let, he was teaching electronics.
0: Let's talk about the book for a minute, what the genesis of that was, and um, what kind of information is in it that collectors would be interested in knowing about.
1: It is, as the name implies, a book mainly for collectors because it is a list of all the pinball machines made since the beginning of the pinball Mm. up to the time it was published. And there's over sixty nine hundred different machines in there. Wow. Because some manufacturers were making pinball machines kinda like car dealers car companies make cars. They make a different but they were making a different model a month during the heyday.
0: When was the heyday of the pinball machine?
1: The heyday really was mid-60s through uh, through the 70s. Gottlieb was the major one in the 60s, and then Bally and Williams became major ones in the 70s. In the 80s, they started tailing off
0: because of Pong. Oh, sure. Yeah, um, I want to get into uh, where we are with pinball a day later in the interview, but the Bally's, I remember playing lots of those machines and the thing that was always interesting about those was they had just the best artwork on the head of the machine and they would, a lot of times it would be a theme around some popular movie or television show, but I was always hard pressed to connect what the game had to do with the theme (laughs) Was that something that you you guys observed as well?
1: Uh. Uh, yes, most of the time there was I believe David Christensen was the artist and he was a very art very artful person and did very good art but the theme was just a theme. Yeah. And that's what Stearns is doing now. Stearns is the only manufacturer left and they say they will not make a machine unless it doesn't have a copyright or
0: a theme on it. That's probably wise because there's, uh, in all different kinds of collecting, we find that there are different ties and themes to different things in popular culture, so it makes a lot of sense. Pinball machines be the same as uh, any other kind of collectible or tradable. Now, I want to talk about the wood rail machines from way, way back. Talk to us about that a little bit.
1: Well, pinball machines, as they started out, they started out, Actually, the first pinball machine was in the 1800s, but after they become commonplace, let's say, as you were talking about, five balls for five cents. Right. There were Most of them were wood rails before the flippers came out. And then in 1949, the flippers came out. And right. they continued with wood rails, but they started, some of them started having metal legs.
2: Right.
1: But they kept the wooden legs, uh, the wooden frames going because it looked like a nice, pretty picture frame. Yeah. Like wooden picture frame.
0: Yeah, it looked more like furniture than anything yeah. else.
1: Yes, And it was really nice, but I don't know the dates when they, they dropped off. The wedge heads is what they usually call Gottlieb's. It was in the, I believe, in the 60s. I'm not positive of those dates. But those were when then they went to a, what it was considered a wedge head or a, an angular head.
0: Mhm. And you have, the wood. And you of course have information about these machines in your book.
1: Well, the book contains all the machines and who made them and when they were made and then a little indication as to how many were made and things of that nature and there are plenty of price guides out there. Right. But as I've said before, they're not worth much because as we talked about before, on the West Coast, there wasn't any pinball machines before the 70s. Right. And in the East Coast, so you can buy machines a dime a dozen on the East Coast, and on the West Coast, you can't even find them. So how do you write a price guide that's correct?
0: Challenging. Um, yeah, maybe guide is the right word for uh, for that, a guideline rather than a rule. But it sounds to me like if you're a collector or a potential collector, and you want to you know, buy machines that are less pricey start on the East Coast. Is that a fair assumption?
1: Yes, it is. Yes, it is.
0: And what what might you pay for a, a pinball machine?
1: Uh, I have a, a rule of thumb, and it's kind of funny. I won't pay over $200 a, a, for a machine.
2: Oh,
0: boy. But
1: I'm looking at it differently than most people. And you can get a good machine if you look at, what Craigslist or ref- what is it? recycler or places like that. Mm-hmm. And just look to make sure the machine is complete. By that I mean the back glass is there, it doesn't isn't losing a lot of paint. Mm-hmm. The play field is there and it doesn't look like it's too badly worn. Right. If the cabinet is bad on the outside, that can be cleaned up. Right. But then the third thing really is to make sure it is complete. And there isn't any wires hanging that shouldn't
0: be. So um, you can find machines for $200 with those guidelines. You know the thing I used to hate when I would play pinball is the flippers would stick? I hated that. Right. God, that would make me so mad.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: And you're never going to get your money back.
1: <laughs> uh, well, that's the problem with pinball machines <clears throat> because they're a high-maintenance item. These route owners like videos because they don't take much maintenance.
2: Right,
0: they're and all they electronic. Money. Yeah. Um so do you consider yourself a route owner or are you just in it for the repair and resale?
1: I'm not even in it for the resale. Okay. I'm in it for the historical. I do service calls and I try to teach people how to re- maintain their own machine.
0: That's so interesting because, you know, that's a very common theme on this show that people are interested in collecting a certain thing because of the historic value or the artistic value or the commentary it made on a certain time in uh, the country's history. So that's interesting that you found a calling where you can really experience it for what it is and it's not just you know about making money. Not that there's anything wrong with making money, but I think you know what I'm trying to say.
1: <coughs> yeah, well, I'm not out there to make a lot of money. I don't even charge a lot for my service calls, but I do try to keep the people so they learn enough about their machine so they will not put it in a trash can.
0: So if I want to start a pinball machine collection, what's the first thing I do?
1: Well, some people say, what is the best machine you have? And a lot of people will say, it's the machine I have now.
2: <laughs> yeah. It
1: isn't. That anybody really has a goal of getting, until you get into the machines deeply and figure out what era you like and things of this nature, to just go ahead and pick up a machine. Mm -hmm. And there's places around that you can get the wiring diagrams, you can get the replacement parts, you can get the rubber rings. Some companies even send you, if you write them a letter and say, I need a set of rings for this machine of this date by this manufacturer, they'll send you the set of rubbers.
0: Oh, that's cool. And so you
1: don't even have to have a big supply. I, I buy rubbers by the hundreds, of course, because I'm repairing machines. But the average person doesn't have to.
0: Yeah, that was one of the things. we I've talked on the show before that I own a, a, a Coca-Cola vending machine from the early 60s. And um, if the thing ever breaks down, I'm in a bad way. Because unlike you, I have zero mechanical aptitude. I'll, and I'll be hard-pressed to find... Somebody, we live in a real small town, that's going to be qualified to work on the thing. So I cross my fingers that the thing keeps working, and so far, so good. And I think that's another thing about these machines. They were built to be knocked around in public. They were built to be used.
1: And that's some of the problem with the new electronic ones. The electronic ones are made to be used also. Mm -hmm. The problem is people don't use them, or they forget about them, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then the computer boards have batteries on them to keep the high score up and all this kind of stuff, and the batteries start leaking acid
0: and destroy the board. Oh, dear. We were going to talk about the state of pinball machines today in the 21st century, and you had mentioned that there was only one company currently still in the business. Tell us about those guys.
1: Uh, well, Sterns, Sam Sterns. Started the business in the seventies and produced a machine that was a circuit board copies of Bally.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Then he decided to get out of the business, and his son Gary Stearns took over the business. Right, and he is still running the business, making probably I would say something like six six different machines a year. But most of his machines, he's only making something like 500 at a time.
0: And that's not considered very many from the sound of it.
1: No, it isn't. But you go to an, uh, a bowling alley or an arcade, and you might find one or maybe two at the most pinball machines.
2: Yeah.
0: Because so
1: there isn't, just isn't the demand.
0: So, and they're all computers, I guess, these days.
1: Yes, yes. And is actually. Th- there's it falls into several categories and they're very modular one piece is the computer one piece is the IO board which does the turns the light bulbs and the coils on one piece controls the flippers and another piece controls the dot matrix display which is the nice pretty display that
0: it has right now i'd be remiss if i didn't ask you about this from either new machines or old machines the tilt <laughs> Tell us about the Tilt.
1: The Tilt. Harry Williams was essentially the father of the current pinball machine. Right. Uh, On our website, there is a couple of, Russ Jensen is a historian, and he wrote a couple of articles about Harry Williams, and that was a very fantastic man on his design.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And he designed the Tilt because he got tired of, seeing people shake the machine. Yeah. And really, the funny thing is, the tilt is just an upside-down conical hanging from a wire Mm -hmm. in a hole. So if you bang the machine around, that is, this upside-down conical touches the outside of the hole and tilts the machine.
0: Yeah, it just uh, closes the circuit and you're done. And I can remember from playing those machines, there were some... You could bang them around pretty good, and it wouldn't tilt. And there were some, if you just barely move them, they would tilt right That's away.
1: Right. That depends on how far down this upside-down conical is fitting into the hole that it has.
0: That is so much
2: okay. fun.
1: <laughs> some of the new machines, the Williams machines are, and I don't know if Stern's is now, but they count the number of times it bangs, Ah. and it could be adjusted. Usually it was by factory default three times. You could make it bang three times on one ball, or less, three or less times, and it would be okay, but you do it the fourth time, and it's going to tilt. Yeah,
0: well, that seems fair. And if people knew that, they could, you know, measure their tilting. Yes. But, uh, yeah, that was the... I just had so much fun playing pinball machines when I was growing up, and I still fancy video games. Now, Don, tell us about your book. How can we get a copy?
1: Okay, the book is available on the Internet, and the web page name is, uh, as the name implies, www.pinballcollectorsresource.com. My address is out there, and my contact information, if you're interested in getting one. I stress it is not a picture book. Okay. It is just a list. It's, it's, how you say, it's the results of a computer programmer getting a hold of a
0: bunch of data. Okay, so I think we're, those of us who work with technical folks, we're adequately prepared for a uh, small type and lots of data. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but um, important data nonetheless. And uh, give us your website one more time.
1: Uh, Pinballcollectorsresource.com
0: And Don Muting, it's been really fun to talk to you about... Uh, Pinball machines, and I very much appreciate you making time for us this week on the Collector Show.
1: Well, thank you for having me on.
0: Coming up next, it's The Found Show with Harold Nickel. Keep listening, it's Web Talk Radio. like to collect things, this next guest is perfect. Todd Wilbur has reverse-engineered a number, and not just a number, that's not even fair, hundreds of recipes from popular restaurants across the United States, and has collected them in a series of books he's going to talk with us about. And Todd Wilbur, welcome to The Collector Show.
2: Hey, thanks, Harold. Good to be here.
0: Now, let's talk uh, a little bit about your background. We'll get into the Cookbook collecting angle of this um, sure. later on, but uh, here at the outset, tell us about your your background. Are you uh, a professionally trained cook or chef? I'm not.
3: I, I I taught myself. I I was actually when I was writing the first book, which was around 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. I was um, I was a reporter, TV news reporter. Oh no kidding. At anchor. Yeah, at a, an NBC affiliate in Yuma, Arizona. Then I moved on to Allentown, Pennsylvania. Meanwhile, I had this idea for. A book that had never been done before, I, I, I got, um, it was inspired by a recipe that uh, some of your listeners might might know about. It goes back a ways before the internet. There was a chain letter for what was supposedly the uh, secret ingredient to the Mrs. Fields chocolate chip cookie. Okay. And uh, the story was that this woman went into a Mrs. Fields store and, um, and bought, they, they sold her the recipe for what she thought was going to be $2.50. They charged her $250. Oh, dear. So she saw this charge on her credit card, so to get even, she made copies of this recipe and sent it out as a chain letter. Oh. And it spread like crazy all over the country. It's a total urban legend. This never happened. Mrs. Fields would never sell the recipe. Uh, someone just really um, changed the, the recipe that's on the Nestle toll house, um, you know, on the, the Nestle um, chocolate chip. Chocolate uh, chips package sure. with the Toll House cookies recipe. Sure, it's, it's really a variation of that recipe. So it didn't taste like a Mrs. Fields cookie to me, uh, but I, I saw what was happening that people loved to um, have something like this. Uh, loved to to um, have a recipe for something that tasted like something famous. Right. And so I thought, well, I'm gonna. How hard can it be? It's a cookie. I'm gonna. See <laughs> Yeah. Tested it and, and and blindfolded a friend, uh, had him try my version and the real one. He couldn't tell the difference. And then I thought I was onto something. Then I started adding recipes: the Twinkie, the Snickers bar, Orange Julius, uh, Cracker Jack. That was that was the first book. Quit my job. Ended up on Regis and Kathy Lee and the Today Show, and the, the whole thing took off from there.
0: I think, if I'm remembering right, I remember seeing you on the on the Today Show, and it must have been 20 years ago.
3: First book was in '93, so it was, it was right around that time, 1993. I started writing the books before that, and have since been on all kinds of shows from Oprah to Good Morning America to Maury Povich, a bunch of stuff since then.
0: I think the thing that stuck in my mind was you had reproduced the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. Yeah, that was in that first book. I was I
3: was feeding it to um Katie Kirk right there on yeah. we were doing a taste test right on the today show which is probably what well you remember. Yeah. Uh, and I was feeding it to her she was blindfolded and she was
0: she had to tell me if she could tell the difference. Yeah, I, it's funny how something like that kind of hangs in your head, but um yeah. yeah, I I do remember seeing that. Um so and let's talk about the Big Mac, because, okay, yeah. a Big Mac is a burger, is a burger, but it has a piece of bread in the middle and two patties. It's the sauce that goes into it. That's uh, it's the sauce. It's a double-decker
3: burger. It's actually a clone. It it's, It is a clone. McDonald's was cloning when they made that um, of uh, the Big Boy Hamburger, which was created years and years before the Big Mac, which was also a double-decker hamburger. Um, it's all about the order you know where stuff goes it's two patties it's your lettuce or cheese your pickles and then that special sauce which is basically just a, a mayonnaise and relish and tomato uh blend sort of like a thousand island dressing and uh, then you stack it the right way and and uh you know use the the same amounts of ingredients that they use at mcdonald's and you're mm-hmm. going to get something that tastes just like a mcdonald's big mac
2: i
0: reproduced your nacho burger um and oh, you, the yeah from chili's and um yeah. The thing uh, that I noticed, you talk about the stacking order. It does matter, the order that you put the ingredients on in.
3: It totally does. Yeah, they all, uh, all the fast food chains make their burgers differently, and um, you know, the way it hits your mouth, the way you taste it as it's going in and you're chewing um, gives that burger its unique quality. So um, everybody's making their burgers a different ways. Sometimes the meat's up on top or it's on the bottom. Where do you put the, the, the sauce? What kind of sauce is it? Is it just a ketchup and mustard mm-hmm. type of sauce or is it a mayo-based sauce? These are all what makes these burgers each special for each chin.
0: Yeah, it. Uh, we made too many, and um, I remember just, uh, you know, I followed the recipe very closely, the first time, and it was delicious. It was, and it tasted just like what you get at Chili's. The second I know, time, I, I just, love it. yeah, and the second time, I just kind of grabbed everything out of the fridge and <laughs> threw it on the bun, and it was completely and different. Okay
3: too, you know, just you can. That's what's cool about having these. These recipes you can get creative and just uh, do whatever you want make it make it special for you if you know if you're a vegetarian and you just eat uh, maybe just eat ground turkey you can use that in place of the, the beef um, there's there's so many things you can do to lower the fat use low fat ingredients so you have the formulas and go ahead and get creative and have fun with it
0: now one of the things we talk about on the collectors show in addition to uh, collecting all different kinds of things is um, legal challenges for collectors. And the one we talk about more often than not is um, oh fakes and uh, counterfeit collectibles. But for your yeah. line of things, I mean, you're you're not calling it, you know, the Todd Wilbur burger. You're calling it Chili's burger, Chili's Nacho burger. Have right. you have you had any trouble with the uh, restaurants over legal issues?
3: No, no, because I when I um, write my books, I'm I'm clear to say that. None of these recipes have been obtained from the chains. I never worked in any of these chains or, you know, perhaps bribed employees to get the information, <laughs> nothing like that. I, I uh, make a game out of it. I, I go to the chains and I get the food. I might ask for information from the servers about how stuff is cooked, but mm-hmm. I'm never getting the actual formula. I have to take it home then and create a recipe that uh, I can copyright, that I can call my own. So when you look at each recipe in these books, it says... Top Secret Recipes version of a Twinkie, uh, Top Secret Recipes version of Chili's Nacho Burger. It's clearly stated that these, this is my take on these items, so I'm not stepping on any toes. And you know, the the chains actually, they actually love it. We've had a lot of support from the chains. When I did go on um, Oprah's show, um, TGF Fridays opened up their store to us so I could reenact how I got information about uh, a sauce that I cloned just for that show. They loved the uh, publicity. Uh, Two books ago, KFC actually sponsored my book tour because I had six um, KFC clones in that book, and they just loved that I was out there talking about how I love KFC so much that I've I've made these uh, clone recipes, so uh, no problems there.
0: You know, that's really a pleasant surprise because more often than not, we talk with collectors on this program, and the people who are very devoted collectors, and the most recent example we had on this program was... uh, we had the woman who's the president of the Pez collectors, you know, the little candy containers. Oh, yeah, I love Pez. Yeah, well, the Pez company um, just disdains her. Really? Um, yeah, and the thing that's amazing is, uh, you know, these are dedicated customers, and the company. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. Yeah, and the, and the company just stiff arms her completely. And uh, finally, some enlightened public relations where not only are they uh, letting you reproduce the recipes and and, uh, assemble them in a book, but also sponsoring your tour or letting you work in the restaurant. I'm happy to hear that there are some enlightened public relations people working, at least in the food industry, if not the candy industry.
3: Yeah, it it does feel good when that happens. They know that uh, just because you can make something at home Uh, It doesn't mean you're never going to go to the restaurant or go to the the drive-thru at a fast-food chain. That's convenience right there. That's exactly right. It's not convenient. It's just something fun to do if you feel like cooking for the night. Let's uh, whip up something that we love, something familiar, and see if this stuff really works. So I I don't compete with with the restaurants. It's just uh, a fun cookbook.
0: Yeah, that's that's exactly right because, you know, people eat out because or they go to KFC or TGI Fridays because, man, I'm too tired to cook or I don't have anything at home. Exactly. A house. Yeah, and um, another one that we fixed, and we're going to talk about Twinkies here in a minute, but um, chicken marsala from Macaroni Grill, I think.
2: How'd that come out?
0: Well, not as good. Now, I don't think it has anything to do <laughs> okay. with, I think that has everything to do with me and nothing to do with you, but that was a more difficult recipe. Yeah, you know,
3: you know, and some are going to be harder um, than others. For the most part, they're easy because these places have to make this food pretty fast. Yeah. Um, uh, so for the most part, they're easy. Some are definitely harder than others. Uh, Big Mac is very easy. The marsala <laughs> it should be fairly easy. Um, I'm surprised it didn't come
0: out so good. Well, like I say, it's. Uh, I- I'm convinced it had everything to do with me and nothing to do with you. There was a a type of cheese that you had on there that I had a tough time finding.
3: Um, let me try and think if I can remember. Is that a Romano? Yeah, I think or, it
0: was. Uh, um, a graded, is it a grated Romano? I don't remember if it was graded or not, but I just yeah. remember I had a tough time finding it. But anyway. Oh,
3: okay, it's pretty common. Um, yeah, I mean, try to use really common ingredients in in these um, recipes, and if I can get away with even cutting corners mm-hmm. and using, say, a cake mix, I've I've uh, cloned in the last book, top secret restaurant recipes too. I cloned the. Um, the molten chocolate cake from Chili's, oh. which is great. It's their, it's their number one dessert. You know, you, you cut into it, and this cake—it's like got ice cream on top, and magic shell chocolate on top. But when you cut into it, this molten chocolate oozes out from <laughs> the middle, and it's amazing. So, um, for the for the clone, I I just have you using a box of cake mix, and it makes it so much easier. And you load it with this uh, with Hershey's fudge. You pop these suckers in the freezer. And then, whenever you have some guests over, you need a quick dessert. It's 45 seconds in the microwave. The the inside gets all molten and gooey, just like the real thing. Put some ice cream on top. Little magic shell, done deal. Quick dessert, super easy. I always have some in the freezer.
0: It sounds um, good enough that I may have to go. Uh, you may, have I, that I may have to go hard try, hard to hard try hard. that right now. If you're just, super easy. If you're just joining us, it's the Collector Show with Harold Nickel. We're chatting today with Todd Wilbur, who has reverse engineered hundreds of your favorite dishes from popular restaurants all over the country. Now, I promised we would talk about Twinkies and I successfully made the Twinkies with the with the filling. You went with the Twinkie? That yeah. Out,
2: huh.
0: It was uh first of all, it was delicious. Yeah. And it was just it was just stupid how easy it was.
3: where I don't have you um, uh, using, you know, uh, making a, the cake part of it from scratch. You just take a cake mix and sort of alter. It's a pound cake mix, so you alter um, the, the way they instruct you to make their pound cake. You know, you ignore the instructions on the box. Do what I say so it becomes a little fluffier. Um, and make the, did you make the molds out of foil and maybe wrap them around a spice bottle so you get sort of a Twinkie shape?
2: Um,
0: they were kind of... Uh I think the ugliest Twinkies ever made. Sort of <laughs> <old>, sort
3: of, <laughs> you no, know, it is not the, the smooth, perfectly crafted Twinkies that you might get in the store. With the three holes in the bottom. With the three ho- but you know why they're better is because you're you're making this at home. You're you're making it fresh. It's coming right out of the Yeah and
0: I think the thing that people are going to want to know in uh putting together the the filling it's uh it's a jar of marshmallow it's cr- crisco and powdered sugar
2: Yeah simple it's and it makes it a uh,
3: it's a non-dairy filling that's why Twinkies have the shelf life they do the actual Twinkies cuz the filling is a non it's a non-dairy filling there's nothing in there that's going to spoil it's basically sugars uh it seems like it's cream you know a mm-hmm. dairy product but it's it's not so they last for a real long time
0: now, let's talk about what all this means for people who collect recipes and people who collect cookbooks. It would seem to me that for either, these books are extremely unique. There's nothing like them. Um,
3: I'm the only guy that does this for a living, that that, that, that makes, that reverse engineers famous food from scratch uh, for this collection of what's now eight uh, cookbooks for a living. So, if you like cookbooks, if you collect cookbooks, they, these are a great addition to any cookbook collection because they're, they're going to be special and you're not going to have anything like them.
0: How many books have you written, Todd?
3: There's eight, eight total books now. Eight. Uh, starting with the first one back in, in 1993. There's going to be a new one. The ninth one will be coming out at the end of November. Oh, cool. The uh, Top Secret Recipes Unlocked. Okay. Already actually um, selling on Amazon pre-sale.
0: Oh, that's... Uh that's awesome. And you are another guest of ours who's been able to uh, convert a hobby into a full-time job. I'm sure we're all um, busy admiring you on account of that. So my guess is that these sell pretty darn well.
3: Yeah, these have done really well for me. We've we've sold over 4 million books. Uh, wow. And a lot of that has to do with um, uh, QVC. I, I go on there uh, on average about once a month mm-hmm. with special versions of the books. And uh, they've become the the top-selling books on QVC on that channel. So thank you, QVC. I love you.
0: (laughs) Indeed. Lots of love for QVC. Big time. So your new book comes out in November. Um, Do you speak around the country? When
3: the book I'll be going on a uh, on a book tour okay. for for that book. In the meantime, I'm doing lots of QVC. In fact, I leave um, on Saturday for Canada. They have their own version of QVC. It's oh, called awesome. The Shopping Channel, oh. and I'm presenting a, a, a book for for Canadians, uh, a Top Seeker Recipes book, a special version that we're uh, debuting on, on Sunday.
0: Now, in addition to your uh, many cookbooks that people can collect, you can also buy the recipes one at a time. Tell us about your website.
2: Yeah,
3: we, we tried to do something really special that no one's ever done before on the Internet, and it's, it's pretty much based on what Apple has done with iTunes, where, um, you know, you buy one song for 99 cents. I think it's even higher now, buck twenty nine, But, yeah. but um, we sell, rather than waiting, a lot of people just want one recipe, something they really love. Well, maybe it's that Big Mac or that Twinkie or whatever it is, or that molten chocolate cake, and they don't want to buy a whole book. for 99 cents right on our website, and a lot of times I'm posting these recipes way before the books come out, so it's a great way for people to uh, get just one recipe they really love
0: really fast right away. goes into the recipe box. It's theirs to use forever. And give us your website address, Todd. Topsecretrecipes.com. So Todd Wilber, who is, uh, even though not professionally trained and accomplished chef, I want you to describe for us, and I read this on your website, but it'll be more fun hearing it from you, how you actually go about reverse engineering these recipes.
3: So many different ways. You know, depending on uh, the type of recipe it is, if it's, if it's something you buy in a store like a Twinkie or an Oreo cookie, you have nothing else to go by except what the um, ingredients are listed on the, mm-hmm. on the package. So I'll use that. And the ingredients list is great. I have no servers to talk to or anything like that, so I can't get any, any extra information. But um, that's, that's how I approach packaged products when you're in stores and, and restaurants, um, fast-food restaurants, even full-service restaurants like the Chili's or TGF Fridays mm. or Outback. That's great. You get to talk to the servers. You get to ask them questions. What, what is this? What's in this sauce? Is it uh, cream? Is this milk? Is this half and half? They'll always go to the back and and get that information for you if you want it. We certainly have a right to know what's in our food. and You don't even have to do what I did on Oprah where I reenacted pretending to have an allergy. Um, uh, You don't have to say you have an allergy to get information. It's simply asking them for it and they'll usually give it to you. A lot of them have have in their pockets um, ingredients lists for people uh, who need to know what's in their food. Uh, so that's, that helps. That's a good place to start, and and then um, uh, so I'll order the food. I'll take a picture of it so I know exactly what it's going to look like when I recreate it at home. Then I'll take a version of it to go, and I'll make sure all the sauces and and uh, garnishes are on the sides; it doesn't mess it up, and so that I can just you know sort of attack each of those components separately. I'll I'll take the sauce, start working on that. Maybe throw it into a sieve, a of, of, you know a fine mesh yeah. strainer run some water through there, see what bits and chunks are, are in the sauce. Uh, you can see the spices and herbs in there, the garlic, the onion, whatever it might be. And then you just you start making it, you know. You might, you might search the Internet for similar recipes if you're not familiar with a, a particular type of thing, like maybe a, who knows, an apple pancake or something like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe I don't know how to make an apple pancake. I'll find uh, similar recipes, make that, see how it's different from the one I'm cloning, and then I start tweaking it, you know. Uh, make a version say it needs more of this, less of this, and, and start whittling away, just start making it over and over again, getting it closer and closer and closer. It takes sometimes weeks to, <laughs> to come up with a recipe. I can just bet. Taste it over and over again. Yeah, a lot of trial and error.
0: Yeah, I, the thing that got my attention in uh, getting ready for the interview today was uh, reading about running water over the ingredients through a sieve, and I thought, wow, that's, uh, that's detail work right there. Yeah, and then I'll even, I'll, I'll slap that, uh, the solid bits out onto a plate um, with a contrasting color. If it's like darker stuff, I'll use a white plate. If it's
3: lighter stuff, I'll use a dark plate. Take a magnifying glass over it and a flashlight so I can really illuminate it and uh, really get in there. And, and I can tell what stuff pretty much looks like. I, I know what how parsley looks different from basil now. And, uh, how onion looks different from garlic and it's pretty easy enough for me to identify the stuff that's in there and then when i make my version i'll measure out the same exact amount that i measured for that original version and then see if my bits and chunks are in the same proportion as the original so it's almost like culinary csi here you know? yeah
0: that's good that's a good line T- culinary csi that's uh I like those guys. yeah you've got your uh ultraviolet light and your magnifying glass and yeah, I got. Yeah, got to get some of that equipment, don't I? Yeah, and uh, it, when you do videos, you can do uh, you know the camera shot from inside the can and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> the, the 3D animations that go all the way down into the
3: into the spice, into the piece of spice. Yeah.
0: Well, listen, Todd Wilbur, who's uh, an accomplished author and chef, topsecretrecipes.com. Watch for his books. Watch for his new book in November. You can pre-order it at Amazon. And Todd, thanks for being on the Collector Show this week. Well, that's going to do it for this week on The Collector's Show. I want to thank everybody for their loyalty and for coming back to the show. And if you have friends who've been missing the show, please let them know. And don't forget to check out our new website, thecollectorshow.com. It's all one word, lowercase. And you can read my blog, listen to past shows, and follow the news, which we always do I think a pretty good job of covering here on the show, thecollectorshow.com. And be sure to come back next week for more of The Collector Show. I'm Harold Nickel here on Web Talk Radio.